Cast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined this week by my co-host Gabby. Hey guys. Not joining us this week is our friend Kate. Uh, she's sadly unable to join us. We hope to have her back with us soon. In the meantime, we are very pleased to welcome to the program critic and programmer Madeline Wall. Hey Maddie, how you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. So this is a this is a fun episode. Uh, too much birthday episode three point seven. As we sort of wind towards the close of this season of Succession, uh, we get a lot of spectacle, a lot of sort of uh, tough truths, a lot of confrontations. So we'll do a quick plot summary and then start diving into the stuff that interested us about this episode. So on the morning of Kendall's fortieth birthday, the Waystar team learns via a back channel at the DOJ that the investigation into Waystar is unlikely to result in prison time, which provokes respectively celebratory and dismayed reactions in Tom and Shiv. The siblings all attend Kendall's birthday party, but Shiv and Roman have been sent with an ulterior motive to connect with elusive tech CEO Lucas Matson, whose streaming platform Gojo is a seemingly perfect match for Waystar's content library. Roman is able to find the antisocial Matson and strike up a rapport, while also delivering Logan's birthday message to Kendall, an offer to cash out his shares in the family trust. Meanwhile, Tom does the wrong drugs in the wrong order, Shiv cuts loose on the dance floor, and Greg scores a date with Comfrey. Ken, however, has a bad night, calling off his planned musical performance at the last minute and learning from Raba that Waystar goons have been harassing their children and the nanny. When Ken confronts Roman about the harassment, Shiv seems to be learning this information for the first time and realizes how essential Roman has become to Logan. Those are sort of the broad strokes of what happens. We're going to get into some of, a lot of the very fun, entertaining, and some of the very dark and twisted stuff that happens at this party. But there's a self-reflexive angle in this episode where the sort of idea of the birthday party you throw for yourself is this kind of summary defining event, especially at 40, you know, looking back on youth and ahead to middle age. Ken's party comes with this climactic centerpiece musical sequence that he opts out of. And while it's a funny joke that we don't see the performance itself, because, you know, for example, teasing the crucifix is funnier than seeing Ken mounted to it, there's an idea there about the deliberate removal of a climax. This was the last episode that was sent out to critics before the start of the season, and the big bit of information we learn here is that the DOJ investigation is likely to fizzle out with no prison time, no threat to Logan's position. Ken's bit is flopped, and in this anticlimactic fashion, we learn it through a back channel, and the actual investigation is likely to drag on for months before any announcement. So there's a lot here in this episode about this idea of waiting for a confrontation or a defining event that just doesn't happen. And whatever dissatisfaction the audience may be feeling, or Shiv, for example, may be feeling, is also analogized through this party and what Ken is looking for and not getting. Um, you know, in Valter, he called himself a techno Gatsby, and here he really is. And I think that longing for a climax, I think, also ties in with the idea of kind of suicidal ideation and the death wish that this episode suffused with, um, and that has surfaced a few times this season. Yeah, I mean, the climax was uh, the nervous breakdown, not the performance, right? So there wasn't a sense of climax, but um, you know, perhaps not the one that that audiences were looking for. Yeah, this small moment of sort of falling apart over, you know, a, a birthday present uh, that Ken can't find, you know, the birthday present with bunny wrapping paper. Um, but I did want to start uh, this episode by talking about a character who usually I think gets pushed a little bit towards the end of our episodes because he's often kind of separate from the main action. And he is here too, in a sense. Uh, but this episode starts uh, with a big focus on Tom 
who learns that he isn't going to prison. And uh, there's that scene where, uh, after learning that information, he excuses himself to go to Greg's office where he just, you know, wrecks it completely, does this sort of like <laughs> King Kong act, throwing the desk around and jumping up on uh, the, the filing cabinets. And I, I'm just continually astonished at McFadden's performance. And this is like some of the most fun I've ever had watching him. He continually pulls out things that I just did not know he was capable of like you know you tell me that the guy who played mr darcy is the same guy doing the you know king kong freak out in the office that's just you know he just keeps pulling things out in his repertoire that i never knew he had i mean gabby you and i were just like kind of marveling at some of the intoxicated acting that he does in this episode too yeah i mean mcfadden is amazing we've been singing his praises for a while but it seems kind of like the the larger succession community is uh getting wise to it. I've seen like a lot of chatter about, you know, McFaddy and Emmy, all that. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I also am just constantly astonished that he's doing all of this tremendous acting while doing accent work the whole time, like impeccable <laughs> accent work. I just, yes. like anytime you hear his actual voice, like every, every time we, we watch the like post episode, chat or whatever my husband's always like oh my god i forgot he sounds like that like how does he do that holy crap um so i mean one day a deep dive into his accent and dialect work would just be absolute treat but yeah um yeah we, we do learn that that tom is celebrating um partaking a little bit of of substance use um <laughs> which we you know we can kind of glean just from yeah, like Brendan said, just the the change in body language and sort of his eyes getting glossier as the evening goes on. Greg also, you know, makes it explicit when they are in uh, this compliment tunnel, one of many rooms <laughs> that um, Kendall has designed and staff have created for, um, you know, to sort of uh, to get a glimpse into Kendall's life cycle, uh, his neuroses a little bit. Um, so yeah, this this compliment tunnel. Um, I thought it was the prettiest. Like I, I'm a sucker for the hanging wisteria and, and all the flowers and stuff. Um, apparently yeah. that was actually a, a something that they pulled from from real life. Uh, somebody's actual birthday party in Brooklyn had something like that. A, a yeah. kind of a, a smaller ver- smaller smaller scale version of it. Um, but yeah, Tom starts out really really happy about the prison thing. I love when he walks in and he sees Willa and he's like. Tom Wamsgan not going to prison. You know, he's on top of the world. Um, but yeah, I think it's very, very fascinating how it sort of degenerates throughout the episode. And he's realizing um, that this is not making him happy. How come this is not making him happy? It's not yeah, the I mean, freedom I, I, he wanted. <laughs> right. He got the freedom he wanted. Yeah, this whole, we've talked about in these previous weeks how Tom is sort of looking for a future he can look forward to. And all of a sudden he has it and he does, you know, uh, it's quite gratifying and obviously very funny to see the way that he responds to that with this just over-the-top exhilaration, this immense uh, strain is sort of lifted on him. But yeah, I wanted to just start off talking about that because I thought that that whole arc of throughout this particular episode of Tom starting off with this incredible exhilaration where he realizes he has his future back and then just sort of like slowly, you know, obviously descending into drugs and becoming disillusioned and being like, wait, you know, the future still kind of sucks because <laughs> you know, I'm still in this terrible Why am I that, not happy? <laughs> that drains the life out of me. Yeah, and again, also very affecting. 
um you know but i mean this it's possible that i don't know his uh things might be better for him at the company i don't know i mean maddie you were noting how uh you know there's there is that gesture between him and logan where you know logan touches his hand and says i'll remember do you think that augurs i mean better things for them in the future i mean i don't think so it really does it reminded me of a few of the episodes with the dead cat where tom is the one helping him in the bathroom stall and that sort of tender hand gesture that gets repeated here when logan is cognizant um i love that line where tom's like it's best not to hope and now that he's free, he still doesn't have hope. He's still very much trapped in something of his own making. So even though things are better, things are not good. Right. Yeah, now he has to sort of uh, return to the realization that his marriage is falling apart. Him and Shiv are basically on two entirely different wavelengths this, this entire evening. They're, when they speak, they are speaking to themselves. Um, it's kind of funny to watch. Uh, usually it's Brendan, like Brendan has noted that Shiv is kind of always, um, you know, half out of the room whenever Tom is speaking, but it seems like he's kind of arrived at that point too, where they're just yeah. having two separate conversations. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very, very dark, uh, realization for Tom. And a lot of it I think is, uh, you know, reflected in, in Greg's happiness. Uh, Greg is feeling pretty good about the fact that he's probably not going to go to jail either and he's also um you know courting comfrey ken's pr uh, employee and so he's feeling good and i think um for tom greg has always been sort of his punching bag his his uh you know somebody he could look to is maybe lesser status than him um and yeah, it was a funny inverse of the episode Prague, um, another party episode, maybe the only other really uh, predominantly um, party set episode of the series. And um, in that episode, Greg is miserable. He's forced to do a bunch of cocaine. Um, <laughs> Tom is, meanwhile sort of um leaning into like the the newfound well actually i don't think shiv has fully um you know decided on the open marriage at this point but she did just you know let them know that um let tom know that he could do what he wanted at the bachelor party they're adults it's it's sort of already been alluded to that uh you know they can uh sort of you know what what is she saying yeah 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 (laughs) So, you know, that's when Tom uh, has the encounter with Tabitha and swallows his own load. And he's clearly having a terrible time at that party. But, um, you know, there's that hilarious moment when um, Greg is like, this is nightmarish. And Tom is like, I'm having the time of my life. And he's really just, you know, lying to himself. But it kind of seems like that um, really, really strong capacity for denial that Tom has is is kind of, uh, you know, dissipating. Oh, so that it all happens in a compliment tunnel. He yes. chooses to accept any of this praise because you know it isn't real. <laughs> the yes. first one he accepts. Um, and then true. the second one seems to really tick him off. You're so full of grace, which was just hilarious. Like the way. <laughs> it is It is genuinely an odd compliment to pay somebody. It is. It is an odd phrasing. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's antagonized by it. He's like, what the fuck do you mean full of grace? Are you being sarcastic? Um, yeah. The kind of paranoia of being too high and coming down. Right. I think it's yes. just done so well. Yes. I mean, yeah, just the, the line about doing the wrong drugs in the wrong order really, really tickled <laughs> me in a funny, funny, funny spot. Like, it's just 
such a great way to to you know deflect whatever your bad mood um you know wherever it's come from just to say that you know well i I didn't do the right drugs in the right order um again you know a little hang on to a little bit of denial there but yeah seeing greg happy and and just the way that he says like i'm the one that's supposed to be happy not you um so so so, (laughs) just still kind of an asshole um well, talk about the the closed loop system, right? I was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they're 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 kind of both Greg and Tom on that sort of merry-go-round. People are always rising and falling in America, right? And there's, uh, I was, you know, I was rewatching Prague, and it's funny you mentioned like the accent work, and I was just kind of struck by the way the the accent has actually gotten a lot better. I think in, really? in Prague, yeah, in Prague. I mean, I think in the early episodes, you know, uh, McFadden could do this thing where when he was. Uh, he was really excited. The voice got a bit kind of Muppet sounding. He sounded a bit Kermity uh, when he got <laughs> excited. Um, I don't. I don't. I heard that. I heard that quite distinctly. Uh, rewatching Prague. I don't. I don't hear that so much. Uh, so much anymore. But yeah, I love the the compliment tunnel. It's uh, it's a it's a, exactly the kind of thing that you can imagine. Absolutely fucking fucking you up if you were too high at that point. Just a very unsettling thing to be walking through. There's also just a bit of I think like in Vino Veritas with that scene when Tom is looking out on the dance floor, it's like, everybody just looks unhappy, you know, (laughs) able to just kind of cut through and just be like, everybody's face just looks miserable. (laughs) Everybody here uh, looks unhappy and everybody should be as happy as I am. And it's, it actually does seem like Ken's terrible nightmarish party kind of drags him down a bit, which is, I guess, a good way to transition into talking about uh, the night that Ken has and his uh, ridiculous concept party um <laughs> i'm very sad that kate is not with us tonight because uh kate is like our resident i think kanye correspondent and this is like the most kanye <laughs> episode or the most kanye that ken has ever been this very like maximalist vibe that his party has you know gatsby uh but also kanye or, or biggie right the notorious ken ready to die as it says on the outside you know the, there's all these themed rooms and these concepts there's a lot of ideas that don't exactly cohere necessarily but they're broadly suggestive of his complexes you know and i was thinking about how the device of that elaborate themed party allows the show to kind of enter Ken's headspace without breaking with the show's reality, you know, and attempt something closer to like the dream passages and Sopranos or Mad Men. So much of the show is swimming around inside kind of Logan's headspace that it's a bit startling to be inside someone else's like this immersively. And there's an element of this kind of like irony joking or am I joking to the whole thing, the tiresome, uncomfortable posture of someone who knows it's important to not be seen as self-serious, but can't stop self-aggrandizing. Um, Ken adopts the, you know, the millennial trend of sort of kid-themed parties for adults and exaggerates it to these grotesque extremes like the delivery room entrance, the abandoned idea for lunchbox canapes, the treehouse, tiny Wu-Tang, you know. The and cocktails that set- and baby bottles. <laughs> Straight yeah. from Vanderpump Rules, another... <laughs> <laughs> another major influence on this show absolutely yeah I, well it's a key text in celebrity culture and right. that's but this sense of just like sentimentality sort of like failed sentimentality and like bathos it's key to who ken is but it's mm-hmm. also the effect produced i think by the falseness of his redemption arc which he kids around with with the you know the christ staging and this uh musical number that we never actually see um even as he's longing for somebody i think like his kids are like naomi to like just tell him you know he's actually good 
right? Like Naomi says yeah. in that opening scene, that's like, you know, he's like, this is funny, right? And she's like, you're actually kind of a good singer. And it's like, that's like a very yeah. sad moment. It's like, you know, this could be good if you really wanted it to be. There's just like so much insecurity there. And how much can you author your own redemption in the end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge question this season, right? Um, that very, like, I mean, I was thinking about, um, the, the show is so on point with Ken's, like, musical tastes. Um, like, obviously, this plays a lot with, like, hip-hop, and, you know, he has that line where he's talking about he wants his playlist to be all bangers all the time. It is a pretty good, it is a pretty good playlist, I have to say. I, I queued up some of the tracks that I've been listening to, and it worked, and I was like, this was pretty good. Uh, but uh, but the, the, the soundtrack cue that made me laugh the hardest was... Uh, the scene when he's backstage getting ready to do the the number um, the song that's playing is LCD Sound System New York I Love You But You're Bringing Me Down and this is not the first time that Ken has been listening to LCD Sound System I think in the season 2 finale he was listening to their song North American Scum but that struck me as so funny because uh, that band obviously is famous for like going out on you know that intentional sort of like last show at Madison Square Garden right and that intentional sort of like staging of a climax and sort of writing themselves into sort of like pop music history right and then they come back a few years later and say actually we're, we're getting the band back together and there is so much in that in that particular song in New York I love you but you're bringing me down that is just sort of this like weepy hipster sentimentality that I think is just so key um, to the kind of guy that Ken is this uh and that band always had this sort of like winking quality to their music, this like sense of irony and self-awareness about the whole hipster thing, even as, you know, they wanted, you know, the big ballads and they wanted the big emotions with songs like that, too. And I thought that cue was, was so funny and it's, I thought it was a good way to sort of think about the, the headspace that Ken is in. Well, you also mentioned that that made you think of, um, you know, Kendall, even though he's, we learned he's a millennial, that he's kind of spiritually Gen X. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was a big part of like the appeal of LCD Sound System too, which is, you know, a, a band that was very important to me when I was in college, but it was like sort of uh, bridging the gap between, you know, the Gen X hipsters mm -hmm. and millennial college kids, like kind of through the medium of like dance music, right? Um, yeah. So I just love that cue for all, all different kinds of reasons. Uh, but <laughs> there's that, you know, he has that line early in the episode about, you know, if I start second guessing, uh, right. it collapses. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of these concepts are really just best kind of not to think about. And there's a lot of subtext that here that just like doesn't do to think about like again the setting of Hudson Yards, which, you know, kind of seems to me like it might have been you know, an idea that came to them rather arbitrarily is like, that. where would a guy like Ken live? Hudson Yard, sure, why not? Uh, but we've been talking about, Gabby, you and I, all these kind of like unsettling resonances that that location has, right? Yeah, so so the party takes place at Hudson Yards. Um, most of the episode was shot there, although they had to do some soundstage work for, for some of the rooms. But um, Hudson Yards is also where Kendall's new apartment is. And if you're familiar at all with the area, um, I'm sure it makes a lot of sense to you to, to realize that someone like Kendall um, lives here. Um, if you're not familiar, Hudson Yards is kind of this behemoth 28-acre multi-building residential and commercial development on the west side of Manhattan. Um, I actually lived in this area about 10 years ago when Hudson Yards was still pre-construction. 
Um, and the area is kind of uh, an industrial no man's land in between Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen. My roommate actually used to call it Lincoln West because the Lincoln Tunnel is right there. and There's just a constant stream of traffic due to that. Um, but Hudson Yards was part of an effort to upzone the area. Um, there were plans to host the Olympics there if the city won a bid. And in recent years, a lot of financial firms and banks and tech companies have moved over there. There's a ton of luxury real estate. It's got the world's largest equinox. So it has to an extent revitalized the area, um, but aesthetically, architecturally, spiritually, um, the public reception of Hudson Yards has been largely very negative. Um, it's panned as this sort of sterile, gated upper class community that's very much out of character with the city and represents you know, all the bad changes that have been happening in New York in recent years and decades. And the show knows this and they play with it. And I really liked how uh, when Kendall's shouting from his balcony early on in the episode, you don't get really a, a view of the city or the skyline. You just see these two giant under construction eyesores. Um, so, you know, I thought that was deliberate. And the whole apartment is kind of gaudy. And, and like Brendan mentioned, um, when we first saw it, it's a very far cry from Rava's, um, you know, beautiful old world Woolworth apartment or even the, the uh, season one townhouse that Kendall lived in, which we don't see yeah, very yeah. much, but was nice. Um, what's more unsettling about Hudson Yards is that there is a suicide problem there. Um, in less than two years, four people have jumped to their death from the vessel, which is that um, honeycomb or shawarma, if you will, like staircase structure that I think is probably the most recognizable part of Hudson Yards. Um, we see it in a shot as, as um, guests are entering the party. The city has had to close the vessel a couple of times, most recently after the suicide of a 14-year-old this past summer. Um, there's obviously a fencing you know, slash barrier problem there at the vessel, but um, there's also something inherent to the structure itself that evokes decay and death. And I found this quote from Jacob Allspector, a lecturer at the Spitzer School of Architecture at the City College of New York. Um, he said, the vessel is like some M.C. Escher nightmare, referring to the famed graphic artist known for his staircases to nowhere. It's kind of relentless. It's very gaudy. It's very cold. It's thrilling. It's not the most friendly and life-affirming and inclusive kind, of, inclusive kind of space or structure. It's kind of empty. What's the point of it? Just to walk up and walk down. People who feel alienated with the world may not be supported very well by an experience like that. So yeah, as soon as I saw the vessel in one of those, in one of those early shots outside of the party, my stomach kind of turned because one, Hudson Yards is just such a garish place to have your birthday party, and two because of what I know about the suicide problem there and this being a big Kendall episode. Um, and we did indeed get a lot of that um, similar imagery here to Safe Room with Kendall being on a downward spiral, um, looking down from the top of a building, looking over balconies. Um, there's a pretty clear shot of the vessel from on high at the end of the episode um, when Kendall and Naomi go home and he's looking over the balcony and... Um, you can just really see how high up he is and how long that fall would be. Yeah, I mean, that the joke about, you know, just the fact that the first thing you see when you enter that party is that uh, banner or that sign that says Notorious Ken, ready to die. It's just like, yeah. what what joke is that? Like, what is the point mm -hmm. of that joke? You know, like the, I, like the, the sort of like doominess and deathliness and like suicidal ideation that's just kind of suffuses this episode like very subtly um you know you yeah see and like again that, like like, like 
<laughs> like you say that he's trying to poke fun at it, but it's like this is actually. <laughs> but what is he is poking fun at? Because yeah, <laughs> right, right. Do people I mean, like he, know that Ken wants to kill he, himself. He, he, is that a thing that's that known about him? The Dante AI Carthage thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's like this this Kanye, uh, like you said, just sort of like overproduction and. You know, he's got the, like, very exclusive Gucci bomber jacket and the chain. Um, but, yeah, I mean, his whole thing this season has kind of been this, uh, you know, birth and death arc, right? Like, in the first episode, there was a lot of that that water imagery and rebirth and whatnot. And, you know, uh, the idea of ideation and death and suicide is something that is always sort of following Kendall around. But um, it was interesting that he also you know uh developed the ideas for the rooms to to represent a life cycle like uh when they first <laughs> walk through the, the vaginal canal and apparently there was these huge um legs at the end of it they didn't really show you can kind of see it in one of the shots yeah, yeah. um so it's just this you know kind of ridiculous uh idea and then you know entering the nursery and there's champagne and you know the little baby cribs um yeah, so I don't know. What do you guys think? It um I didn't realize there were legs because the whole vaginal canal reminded me a lot of a artist and filmmaker named Nikita Saint Fal, um, who makes like giant women with legs you walk into. Have you ever seen this movie called the uh, the Laughing Women or Femina Readens? It's like a really odd giallo, um, for a giallo, like it's very strange. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, but so she makes like giant women's bodies and a giant vagina. Mm-hmm. She also does a lot of art involving shooting things with guns. Oh. Um, but interestingly, she was sexually abused by her father. And a lot of the artwork she does is about that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of tying in to the sort of questions of abuse all these children deal with. So having the sort of vaginal imagery. Um, but not only that, I was, I've was i always kind of felt that season, the end of season two was Kendall committing a kind of suicide um, by turning against mm-hmm. his family. Um, and uh, speaking of dream imagery, I really like, there's a American filmmaker named Maya Darren who made a movie called Meshes of the Afternoon, which is like the film that has influenced every dream scene you've ever seen. Um, also extremely important with an avant-garde film, but for more... Uh, television purposes um, but she has a line in her movie because in up where there's a scene where the character the protagonist takes four steps and Darren writes that in order to kill yourself you have to walk through all of time and I really did feel that this whole birthday party was Kendall walking through all of time mm-hmm. in order to kill himself or I guess it's kind of um, crucifixion which he ends up bailing on which is also a kind of death like right. he really he couldn't commit so he had to bail and all that's left is to look down at the Hudson Yards suicide tower. <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a fantastic line. I, yeah, I love that that Darren line because yeah, there is a sense where he's, uh, you know, it is sort of like a you know ghost of Christmas past kind of thing where you know he's seeing all his siblings there, um, and there's you know the, they kind of imply that all these people from his past are at this party, like that Stewie's there, that Lawrence right. Lee is there, that they're all these figures who, do, who kind of flit in and out and are just kind of like in the ether somewhere like the idea of this party is like so big like you might never run into these people like you might never know that like uh jeff and elon as confrey alludes to (laughs) are at this party um which you know it it seems like at some point we would bump into them but that doesn't happen um maybe some of those yeses were actually no's i don't know but we but his his night kendall starts off i think relatively good because he gets something that he wasn't expecting which is his siblings 
coming to see him. Of course, he doesn't know at that point that Shiv and Roman are actually just there looking for Alexander Skarsgård's uh, tech CEO, Lucas Matson. But he's genuinely happy, you know, to see them, right? And I think, um, you know, Gabby, we were talking about that, uh, you know, the idea of looking down from Hudson Yards is being sort of reflective of what happened in Safe Room and those repeated shots of Ken looking over, you know, the edge of the Waystar skyscraper, looking through the suicide glass. And there's also that moment where, you know, Shiv kind of gives Ken a hug sort of more out of obligation than anything, because obviously they haven't really been on good terms since she published that letter about him. But the way the editing kind of focuses in on Ken's uh, seemingly like very melancholic face as there's a uh, tenderness as, for sure as they go in there there's I, th- I think there's like a nostalgia for that moment because you know I, th- I i really do think that like there's some sublimated thing that ken is looking for at this party of like wanting to be understood or defined in some way looking for the identity that's been eluding him all season and you know that moment in safe room as i think probably about as close as he gets um since the events of the season one finale to kind of unburdening himself to someone um even if it's it's a very sort of incomplete thing because you know Shiv doesn't have all the context for it, and I don't think it necessarily makes the impact on her that it should. Um, but I do think that that's clearly what's meant to be on Ken's mind in in that moment. Yeah, I mean, and he's thrilled to get the the um, arrival of Connor and Willa. He's like, oh my god, you know, my family's here, and they kind of make that crack about, well, not your kids, not your mom, not your dad. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is, uh, Ken is, is yearning in this episode. He's yearning to be seen, to be understood. That's why he's constructed this, this monument to himself, um, basically. And, and, um, you know, we get it as we sort of move from room to room, what, what everything is supposed to represent. Uh, Yeah. He's definitely looking for some kind of, um, you know, some kind of meaning. And I think, you know, having his siblings there at first, you know, when he thinks that they're just there to celebrate with him um you know it, it's definitely setting him up for you know the the spiral that happens there's this sort of like impossible fantasy i think that he has i don't know that we've talked about this too much but ken's idea of what's going to happen with his whole bid to take down his father is this sort of impossible contradiction where he wants to destroy the family and also you know save it and sort of like be preserved within it at the same time yeah Right. Like he wants to destroy the, you know, the family company, but he also wants his siblings to like acknowledge that he's like doing what's best and he wants. Yeah, it's very childlike. Yeah, it's like Freudian splitting, you know, Um, you know, it's just something that 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 can't be attained that he thinks, you know, he can engineer himself and and he clearly can't. But this uh, this tabloid room where he's got these giant newspaper imaginary <laughs> newspaper very covers. like a very Murdochian touch the uh, the allusion to tabloids right um yeah so there's ken ken kendall's is that he's crowned what president ceo of world federation president ceo of world federation which again is just like what is that like what just childlike <laughs> stuff star um, trek maybe <laughs> he's uh it's like he's uh it's like he's president business from the lego movie right <laughs> yeah roman um dies in tragic jerk-off accident <laughs> tom Wamsgan's wife arrested in city sweep of streetwalkers uh again you know also just like the the sexual connotations here again somewhat disturbing but you know we'll get into that and then 
poor Connor elected president of shitting the bag, uh, which I think Shiv mentioned um, just in passing in the last episode. And he gets really upset. Willa defends his honor and is like, you know, Cotton's polling close to 1%. Um, (laughs) Kendall takes it down and, um, you know, which I thought was kind of nice. But yeah, conspicuously, there was not one about Logan. I guess that's just a bridge too far still for Kendall. Does he have that line a little bit later in that scene with Naomi where he says something like he's living rent free in Logan's head or whatever? Yes. Like maybe he or wants. Is it maybe he. Logan's maybe he wants... living rent free in his head. I thought. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe he wants right. to show people that he's not obsessed with his father. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is. It is certainly a very interesting uh, omission, right? Because like, what is Logan doing theoretically in this timeline? Is he dead? Is he like cooling his heels in a jail cell? Um, what's um what's so striking to me about this party is how much his siblings don't get it or don't relate to it like if i were to make an event around my childhood i would assume my brother would get some of the references or be like in on the joke Like there's no shared experience with kendall and his life and his siblings just kind of these like weird gestures toward attempts at bonding which are always Mm -hmm. too late yeah no specificity really to a lot of these fantasies they're very just sort of like elemental things about like again childhood like one of the rooms we don't see i think justine loop posted this on her instagram or i think we see like a little bit of it in the background but at, we like, see it ju- in the background yeah yeah just past that like delivery room where they sort of enter into is like a sort of like a life or like an adult size like baby crib with like yeah. a <laughs> human size teddy bears and like a giant milk bottle again just like very, very weird, creepy stuff, especially when you combine all that with, like, the death imagery. Um, yeah, it's just, like, again, some of these ideas, like, in a vacuum, maybe, but they certainly don't work together. Um, but after that scene uh, where Roman hands uh, Kendall the card uh, that is from him and Logan, that Logan uh, gave Roman to hand to Ken earlier in the episode, he opens it up uh, in this room that is labeled Waystar Hellhole which is like a replica of Ken's Waystar office, but it's got these like uh, plasma screens projecting images of flames on the windows. Um, which and is I, a thing I, you do when you're not obsessed with your dad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not obsessed with my dad, not obsessed with this company. Yeah, it's like, yeah, sitting in this office, it's like he's the, he's like the this is fine dog. Right, um, yes. <laughs> But uh, yeah, he opens up this card, which is an offer to buy out his shares from the family trust, which he tells Naomi, I think in the next scene, is worth $2 billion. I think that Stewie made him a similar offer back in Prague, too, to talk about sort of like the circular resonances between episodes, you know, and the exit ramps, the off ramps that are available to Ken at different points. And yeah, Gabby, we were talking about that scene, and that's one of the more substantial scenes that we've seen between Naomi and Ken uh, since the season two finale. Um, It's interesting to talk about Naomi a bit, who I think some people have been a little bit disappointed with how she's been handled this season, and she's been a little bit more sidelined. She hasn't seemed to be playing as active a role in sort of Ken's life uh, as we thought she might. Um, But this, this episode, and I thought that this scene in particular, really called back to sort of the first circumstances of their meeting in Turnhaven. What did you think of this? Right. Yeah, I, I appreciated um, the writing of, of Naomi in this episode for sure. I think it shows, um, you know, why her and Ken are together, why Ken um, relies on her. And yeah, it was interesting after he tells her about this, um, you know, this gift, um, Naomi's kind of, you know, like, okay, well, you know, how much is it? Oh, well, you know, are you thinking about it? And, you know, Ken's like, of course not. And, and she's like, 
kind of poses him the question like, well, why not? Um, and it did remind me of their meeting in Turnhaven when, you know, Kendall and Naomi go off alone and they're sort of having this flirtation, but they're also talking about the potential deal. And, you know, and he tells her, don't block your own escape. Um, so, yeah, and um, he just can't really conceive of, of doing that. And, and Naomi obviously is being genuine here. She is, you know, a, a billionaire heiress herself. So she's not like has she doesn't have any material interest in him taking the offer. Um, but, you know, then he sort of re- retreats back into fantasy and starts talking about, well, how about I, you know, take you to Morocco and I buy a bunch of newspapers and I'm fucking you. And, you know, and he just kind of, um, you know, can't even entertain the idea of, of um, you know, just so simply buying himself out. Because it's the best gift he got the whole night. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's like, I mean, outside of it being $2 billion, which I think we'd all accept. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is freedom. It is, it is cutting, it is cutting the cord to continue this uh, right. birth analogy, but he just can't take it. He just can't do it. It's interesting to also to parallel this with the encounter with Rava that comes a little bit later in this episode. You know, it's always great to see Natalie Gold. Um, and I think that, the bit there where you know ken sort of like slips in at the end of this conversation he's like oh by the way i might be getting out whatever it really reminded me of in the premiere when uh he sees rava for the first time at her apartment it's like oh you know i did this for you or whatever which is such a which is which is so funny but it's also like you know what he implies there and i think he's implying again here is that this is something that he and rava talked about a lot and probably something that was a big cause of friction in their relationship and that rava the person who the one person in the series that we know was been like really concerned with Ken's well-being, at least at some point in their relationship, that this was something that really concerned her and that Ken is obviously very conscious that that's what she wants to hear from him. She right. wants to hear that he's getting out. Um, so he knows to tell her that because he thinks that that will curry some favor with her. And he, I, I don't know what sort of uh, half-baked fantasy he has about some reunion with, with her at some point, but uh, you know, he, he has that instinct. Kendall part. is is always kind of half dreaming about getting back together with Rava. I think, you know, they, now that we know he's 40 and his kids are kind of preteens, we know that he had to have gotten married quite young. Um, and I think, you know, maybe his um, desire to, to put a family together that at that young of an age, um, you know, was born out of the fact that he was from a completely broken home and he wanted to, um, you know, build a family in his own image. And obviously it did not work out. And, Rava, um, you know, it seems like there was, you know, issues obviously surrounding his substance use um, and then, you know, his just um, absolute enmeshment with his father and the company. And I think um, Rava is a huge trigger for Ken. It was very difficult for him to see her here. I mean, right away, they sort of start getting a little bit passive aggressive with each other. She brings her boyfriend, which is a little bit of a flex. And I feel like um, she knew that that would probably upset him, but you know, uh, he did bring Naomi like to her to her apartment. And she didn't behave so well, so so maybe it was a little bit of, uh, you know, getting back at him. But yeah, um, you know, she says the thing. Oh, I just want to say hi before everyone's too high again. Sort of like poking the bear a little bit. Um, you know, he makes fun of her for for being straight edge and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that there's um, a longing there and it's it's a major trigger for Ken, but it was also a way for us to learn that, um, you know, uh, Waystar is sending out 
spies to confront um, Sophie and Iverson's nanny about Ken's behavior on the kids. I mean, just this dark, um, you know, mafioso tactics. We kind of have been talking about that throughout the season as it, as it um, surfaces a little bit more. Um, and then it comes up later, of course, with Shiv. Um, but, but yeah, I, um, you know, I, I didn't think she was actually going to bring that up. Um, but once he mentioned the, the, that he might be getting out, um, she kind of slips it in there and, and, you know, he feels bad, but, um, ultimately like, he's just like, yeah, you basically just (laughs) ruined my night. (laughs) Well, I think the best way for him to truly separate from his father is to be a good father himself. Right. And finding out that his children are being harassed and he can't protect them in the way he wasn't protected, I think, really triggers the major crisis. Like, this is really his failure. Yeah. Because he yeah. thinks of himself as a good father. And we've talked a lot about this season about how he's kind of not. And it's just sort of like clearing this bar of not being actively abusive and violent towards your children yeah. that he thinks he's doing such a great job, but he's not really very present in their lives. And I think when he hears that his kids have made him a gift, um, you know, we'll talk about that a little later. He's ecstatic because, you know, the the deal with parenting is that if you're, you know, if you're good enough, uh, you know, your kids love you unconditionally. And, and Ken is constantly yearning for that. So um, well, let's let's go ahead and talk about, you know, that uh, that gift scene, because I think the other stuff with uh, Roman and Shiv we want to get to a little bit later. Um, mm-hmm. But that, yeah, that meltdown where he's looking for. Uh, that gift and in between those scenes we have the uh, the backstage part where he calls off uh the performance and we get this this gag this this gag that slipped in there that he has this uh uh, team of kid performers called tiny wu-tang that are gonna do a a show at some point it's a really really funny gag when that slipped in earlier and then they bring it back it's like wait what about tiny wu-tang and he's like oh shit um we have (laughs) tell them they've got it all ahead of them tell them they got that's a really that's a really funny joke but it's also i think like a pretty obvious you know parallel with all the nods to kind of like childhood in this Mm -hmm. episode and also the idea that like Ken is an absent father. He's absent for his kids. He can't find his kids present. And he's also just screwing over this other un- unseen group of children that happened to be at the party. I thought was pretty, was pretty pointed. Um, but yeah, that's, this is obviously, I think, um, as Gabby said earlier, kind of like the emotional sort of climax of the episode or one of them anyway, where Ken is desperately searching for this gift with rabbit wrapping paper um, that is a gift that Sophie and Iverson have supposedly made for him. Um, and he's, and he's not able to find it. And I mean, it's, uh, and it's, it's, it's tough to kind of see, uh, the way he treats Naomi here too. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was funny, uh, at the beginning of the episode, one of the staff say Kendall's present is that you all are present, um, <laughs> which is very apt for how Kendall has, you know, communicated this entire season, but was obviously bullshit because also, this... also a Kanye line, right? My presence is a present. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Just thinking of, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's this huge gift pile that's like manned by its own team of employees. And I mean, like, I get that it's a big birthday, but it felt kind of embarrassing to me that Kendall's accepting gifts. Like, what could anyone possibly get him that would be meaningful? Exactly. You see, like, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, like, this this motorcycle in the background. It's, it's very childlike. I mean, this whole party that we've been talking about, it's very regressive in nature. So... You know, it seems like Ken is very desperate to find this gift after sort of growing increasingly agitated. Um, He's not enjoying the party. He's getting frustrated with Connor for wearing a coat. He snaps at Greg 
Um, you know, he's uh, uh, harassing his uh, his PR staff for that the music isn't right and that, um, you know, they have to do this. He, he's not enjoying himself and it's it's getting worse and worse. And so I think the desperation to find this gift um, after learning his siblings are there to do business and his encounter with Rava, um, it's sort of like this uh, maybe last saving grace to salvage the evening and, and it, it um, kind of reminded me of season one finale after the accident when I mean, he returns to the wedding and is dancing with the kids to I want to dance with somebody and he yeah. sort of has like a moment where he might be where he's where he's free um, and he, he's not thinking about what just happened because you know when you're with your kids it's like I said it's the people who love you unconditionally um, yeah and all credit to Naomi she really bears with him here and shows a lot of empathy and, and he's you know, having a full-on tantrum, um, and he's really spiraling. It, it was definitely addict behavior to me, just um, the desperation of it. Like, I, I need, you know, something to make me feel good right now because I feel so bad. Um, and she tries to redirect him with her gift, which was, you know, it was perfectly generous but very impersonal. And that kind of just plunges Ken deeper into this whole, oh, my God, like, this, you know, woman that I love and spend all my time with has no idea who I am. Um, and all Ken really wants and what he's really needed since the accident is to be known, um, you know, but again, um, <laughs> he's not going to find it here. Um, and this is a, you know, it's a very, very dark moment for Ken. Um, you know, he's, this is definitely when I think the ideating starts, he says, I wish I was, um, you know, and most of us, you know, kind of know what he wanted to say there. And he ended up saying home, which is also true. But, um, you know, I think what he really wanted to say was that, you know, I wish I was dead. Yeah, because what does Ken mean when he says, I wish I was home? Like, what is home right. to him? His penthouse in Hudson Yards? Like, I doubt it. <laughs> well, right? Like, what is he actually thinking about there? Like, I mean, some idea about, like, you know, mother parenthood being united with your family someplace that doesn't yeah, really it, exist. Yeah, it also yeah. just made me think of how ridiculous, I mean, we're talking about how ridiculous the party is, but, like, when when the siblings bring up, like, yeah, your kids aren't here, your parents aren't here, it's true. Like, the, the kids had to get their gift to Ken via their mom bringing it to the party and dropping it off in this like very impersonal room like why aren't you celebrating your 40th with with your children and with your with your family um instead he's just you know walking around this uh sort of uh, you know huge uh escalated building and and complaining and looking ridiculous and uh it's yeah it's, yeah all it's the very sad all the shots where you get a sense of like the size and like the architecture of uh the shed which is the event space at hudson yards where they shot most of this um very impersonal like very weird mm -hmm. and cavernous and i really liked the way that this um scene was staged in particular because it really is just like a very pathetic site where it's just like a cup it's like not it's not like a well laid out room or anything it's just it's just a room it's just, it's just like a, a folding table in the corner yeah. and then like this pile which is like you know it's a big pile of gifts but it's still dwarfed by like the size of the room around it so everything about the scene just seems very like pathetic and and small um, well, and the know, kid's the... gift he gets is the only one that's actually personal or meaningful like he I so much yeah, of what yeah. he does is a sort of search for meaning a search for connection right. and he gets impersonal gifts from his close loved ones, but his children give him an actual made, handmade gift. Yeah, and they find. wrap it wrap it in rabbit wrapping paper, yeah, which, right? which is an ongoing <laughs> thread here. Like, they obviously put thought into it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, if he, you know, maybe was a little bit more down to earth, uh, maybe he would have been celebrating with his kids directly, you know? Uh, 
it's it's you know just kind of sad uh, the the episode i was thinking of was uh, the episode of mad men in season six and mad men season six is a, a parallel that keeps coming to mind for me uh during this season of succession but the episode titled the crash where everybody at uh sterling draper takes speed um and has a lot of they're like, they're injected by a doctor right yeah dr feelgood right um <laughs> and uh yeah he's got his like vitamin cocktail so they're all popped up on speed and having hallucinations and but the plot of that episode is uh uh, the the thread for Don there is that he's trying to get uh, Sylvia to take him back, and he has this like sort of fevered delusion that buried somewhere in his offices is this half remembered or maybe half dreamed ad line that if he can find that line, that will be like the magic words that will like get him that will that will get Sylvia to take him back, and that's what I kept that's what I, what came to mind when I was watching Ken just like sort of storm around here. It's like there's have to be something here that will unlock like my identity and that will right. like make me whole, right? And you know, and, and and I think in that episode, I don't remember exactly what it is, but I think the ad that he ends up finding is it's you know it's something that was a recurring theme on that show, which was a, something about a boy and his mother, right? And Ken ends this episode. I think being very much like mothered by by Naomi by his girlfriend as she sort of like swaddles him up in this like little kid blanket and like puts him to bed with his head in her lap. She she does a good job. I mean, she tells him like, you know, it's just a party. Um, you know, I think for Naomi the fact that she herself has struggled so much personally, you know, with addiction and mental health problems, obviously there's something there that that, you know, um, that bonds them and she can recognize uh, when he's having a moment like that uh, where it comes from and, and um, that she's been there herself. And so, um, you know, I think that they're good for each other in that sense, but they're also, it's also limited in what she can give him. I think she's probably in a better spot mentally. Um, we know that she's dealing with grief from, from losing her mother. We learned that in Turnhaven, but it doesn't seem like she's, um, you know, having any sort of uh, external issue in the way that that Ken is with other family members um you know she she's been been there for him and and um kind of you know giving him support for his ideas and and trying to keep him in check a little bit like you said in the beginning like you know she says actually this could be good and then you know if you think back to the this the disruption and and um when he's going through some of like the jokes that he might say at the Sophia will be thing. She's like, she's kind of like bringing him down gently about some of them. Um, I, yeah, it seems like she can really kind of just bear with him because, um, you know, she's so familiar with, with that kind of personality and, and, um, yeah. you know, the, the ups and downs of it. So I was glad we got to see a little bit more of the nurturing part of her here because, um, you know, there's gotta be a, something that, that, you know, makes Ken love her. Yeah, but I think that I don't think this episode, you know, uh, augurs good things for their relationship because I think very much, you know, the sort of maybe absence of Naomi that puzzled some people throughout the season, I think in this episode we see is somewhat intentional because I think that what this episode implies is that Naomi has largely been riding the high of Ken's sort of takeover bid and his strike against his father. And she hasn't been that involved with the particulars. He probably has not been totally honest with her about it. And so I think we get a sense here that she's realizing that he's not really serious about wanting to leave his family behind. Yeah. That look on her face at the end, I think. Yeah. Was telling. Yeah. Which she's definitely the only one he seems to be who was around him who says no to him or these pushes back. 
Yeah. Like you have that moment with his two PR people who are like, thank God we're not doing this. It was a terrible idea. When like, aren't you hiring PR people to like keep you in check and tell you what to do? No, that is precisely as the opposite of what you hire <laughs> PR people for. You hire PR people uh, so that they can execute all your terrible ideas and clean up your messes for you. <laughs> so you can be babysat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's yeah, I think it's time that we start to transition to the other siblings in this episode um, because there are some very loaded confrontations that take place between what I kind of think of as the big three of Ken, Roman, and Shiv. So the subplot, the business subplot, as we have mentioned earlier, is that. Uh, uh, Amtrak buys Tesla, right? Uh, Waystar is look is trying to buy the streaming company Gojo that has been alluded to a little bit in the background a couple times before in this season, and it's this, this sudden development that seemed to me kind of for the sake of like bringing in an end game. It feels a little bit arbitrary, um, but it does make sense. I mean, Waystar, as they spell out here, has a legacy media library. They need a platform to match. And again, this is something that reminded me of Mad Men season six and the way that season was received. It was so much about like characters like slipping back into old habits and like recidivism and relapses. Um, you know, there's a line there where when Logan thinks that the Gojo deal isn't going to happen, where they say we're going to go after Pierce, and Shiv is like Pierce oh again. We're doing this again. <laughs> you know, I think there was a line like that in like season in one of the seasons of Mad Men where uh, they're like, we're really doing this again. Um, you know, it's, 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 all these characters are just sort of like slipping back into these old routines, like as soon as they, this future opens up before them. Um, but I mean, this, uh, I, I guess that this does make sense in business terms, but this is where we meet, uh, Lucas Matson, uh, Alexander Skarsgård, who is this weird, like sort of, I don't know, kind of like antisocial tech guy. Um, I think really um, he does seem to be coded as a little bit of like an Elon Musk type, somebody who doesn't really fit in in like sort of like the social like New York media celebrity world per se. You know, he freezes out Logan. He sends his, um, uh, you know, he sends his underlings to that meeting instead of going himself. And Roman has to kind of hunt him down uh, at the party uh, where they talk about the deal. Um, I do like the very pointed sort of like biting the hand style dig at HBO Go uh, where they talk about the terrible <laughs> Stargo, which is like the Waystar streaming app. And they, you do see a glimpse of like the loading page at one point and the like the the, the way that the, the Go is stylized with like the blue dot in the middle is like what the old HBO Go um, used to look like. I would take HBO Go over HBO Max, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wonder if, like, you know, so many people have sort of, like, so many people have, like, cycled in and out of HBO in the last few years that I wonder if anybody's around to, like, really take that dig personally. Um, but I, I appreciate that Succession slipped that in there. Um, yeah. Uh, but this is a big uh, kind of Roman episode, right? Because Roman is the one who closes this deal, or seems to close this deal, uh, with Lucas Matson bringing him back into the conversation and we start to see i think kind of how trusted um roman has become uh by logan and, and i think that everything that's been going on with roman in this season has, has felt to me sometimes as if it's happening in the background a little bit like shiv and ken i think earlier on the season seemed like they were much more the central players um this obviously i think changed in a big way with roman's subplot with menken in the previous episode and if we're thinking about the sort of posture that Roman's adopted and how he's been able to sort of like succeed at business throughout this season, it's rather similar to this sort of like 
head down workhorse, you know, slash attack dog position that Kendall adopted in season two. Um, but whereas in that season, you know, Ken's sort of guilt and his sort of dashed dreams of taking over the company himself meant that that was sort of like a hollowing experience for him, even if as it was sort of empowering because we saw how effective Ken was able to become. Uh, but I think Roman, I think, I don't think he has, frankly, as much of an ego or he doesn't have quite the same sort of power fantasies uh, that his siblings have. You know, we've seen so much how he, I think, sort of takes a comfort in that secondary position. And I think he's kind of happier as a number two than he might be as CEO. Do you think he ever finished his management training? <laughs> I think he did. He's, did learning, he? okay. he's learning on the job. You know, that's the I best kind of training I think he did finish it. Okay, good. Yeah, and they, and they mentioned in the opening scene, or, or him and Shiv are talking and... and uh, Roman has been up all night working on the Gojo thing and Shiv kind of, you know, says, oh, well, you know, big picture um, and and uh, condescends to him a little bit. And, no, I mean, I know that <laughs> Roman was, was, you know, tough to like in this episode, but he has been putting in the work and uh, he's had two really big wins in a row. I mean, he had to sort of field this conversation with this sort of, uh, yeah, this kind of strange antisocial tech guy who, you know, there's not, it's hard to establish a rapport with a guy like this, um, you know, but he makes it work. Uh, you know, there's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, you know, a far cry from his sort of instant chemistry with Jared Mankin last season. I mean, Roman has to work it a little bit more here because uh, this guy is kind of an enigma and, and a little strange. Um, and, you know, Matson kind of just throws out, when will your father die? <laughs> um, <laughs> as, uh, as opposed to that being sort of more of a, uh, you know, hidden question, uh, subtext, subtextual right, question right. For, for a lot of other characters in the show. And, I, you know, maybe a little bit of autism coded there for, for this Matson character. Um, and Roman's kind of taken it back and he's, he's hurt a little bit. You know, Roman doesn't like to think about dad dying, but... Yeah, he kind of has this brilliant pivot where he's like, okay, well, um, how about if you don't have to deal with my dad at all and you can work out of whatever city you want to and if you ever need to communicate with us, it goes through me. Um, that was really smart on the fly. Yeah, I mean, he's he struggles, but he does manage to find some kind of rapport. I mean, he's uh, basically, again, this I think this is Roman's, again, sort of relative lack of ego. He's able to just sort of dig and dig and dig and find something that connects these guys and here is a fairly kind of juvenile sense of humor where they you know take a piss on right. the Stargo <laughs> app together um so he's so he's good at this stuff and he does sort of inherit uh I think this sort of personal charisma that we've seen at times from Logan and he's able to put that in play but yeah he is kind of I thought it was really fascinating the way that how thrown he is by the question and you know, Jeremy Manjo said on Twitter that, uh, you know, you can only cast a Scandinavian to say the line, when will your father die? Um, <laughs> but uh, he's he's very upset by this. And it's what I was alluding to a little bit earlier, how Roman is really comfortable in the number two position because, you know, he doesn't crave, I think, psychologically, the, the fantasy is not like replacing his father or anything like that. 
the fantasy is really like being protected right the security that you know seems to have not been afforded to him as a child and he feels that he gets it by being in that number two spot um and he is not able to hide in that conversation with Matson. like Matson, it could obviously tell that that question genuinely upsets roman he even says he's like i can tell you're a little uncomfortable he's like no no it's okay (laughs) yeah and that uh, yeah and i guess that that gets us to that uh that final kind of sibling scene um i guess we did want to mention the sort of confrontation between ken and shiv and roman at the treehouse where they're trying to get access to Matson a little bit earlier if only because there's that really funny line uh that was one of my favorites in this episode where they're sort of bantering and that's some of where you get like the most sort of like jocular playful but not really sibling interaction in this episode is when shiv says uh you know if best case scenario we make this deal your net worth goes up by several hundred billion uh, million dollars and he says yes but i have to weigh that against the consideration that no losers are allowed um you're you're a nazi lover you're a nazi lover i'm a lover of liberal democracy Yeah, yeah, nice little dig there, I guess, about uh, some some hinting at how maybe that photo with Mencken has been received since the events of of episode six. But the siblings are finally again seen together in this scene uh, towards the very end, uh, where Roman kind of tells Shiv off first, and then they have this confrontation with Ken. You know, he has that line where Shiv is like, well, I might need to finesse the deal. And Roman's like, how are you going to finesse something that's already done by ruining it? Which, again, is a good joke about this sort of, uh, I guess, like savviness or like triangulation that Shiv thinks that she brings uh, to the table. Uh, But again, with that opening scene of this episode where it's established that Roman's done the legwork and Shiv just like won't deign to do it or she like can't do it. She can't engage in the business in the same way. I I do feel that like some of his like anger and some of the spite that he starts throwing back at her, you know, is it is is if if not justified, understandable, I think. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it starts earlier in that conversation by the treehouse when. Um, that's when it shifts Shiv is sort of starting to shift um, away from Roman they kind of come into the party together as allies they're gonna uh, tackle Matson together but then um, Shiv learns about the letter and that it was a you know a discussion between Roman dad and Shiv wasn't involved and then um, you know she Are sort we of has supposed to believe that that Shiv wasn't involved in the conversation. Yeah, that about... Roman and, and Logan talked about it. I think so, yeah. I mean, and that's, Yeah, I think and that's the, the implication, yeah. Yeah, when Logan hands him the card, you know, rewatching it, it does seem like it's something they've talked about before. Okay. Right? They, yeah, they no, on, like on a first watch, I wasn't other. sure. I wasn't sure either, yeah. Yeah, but, um... and the crucial detail there, too, is that since... Uh, the shares are being bought out from the family trust. They have to go to somebody else in the family. And what's implied there is that Roman and Logan are getting the shares, but Shiv is not. Um, gotcha. So they so they both will have a, a, an increased stake and control in decisions relating to the trust, while Shiv will uh, be further isolated and marginalized. Right. So Shiv, Shiv is already, um, well, she's already in a vulnerable state from <laughs> previous episodes, but um, when she, when she learns about that, uh, she gets frustrated. She starts drinking more. She hits the dance floor. Um, and then when she encounters Roman again and learns that he kind of sealed the deal, um, you know, they start of start going at it with each other in terms of, of the call outs. And it, it's sort of uh, reminiscent of Austerlitz in the way that, um, 
you know, the the way that they are criticizing each other it rings very true um you're talking about like the so, final sort of like confrontation in the kitchen that happens in austerlitz right exactly yes yeah. um you know logan calling shiv out kendall calling dad out um it's a little bit different here in terms of who's calling who out but um yeah th- i thought this was interesting because it was also you know eventually kendall joins them it's also the first time that um, you know, there's this shift where now Roman is sort of on top and it's the two, it's Kendall and Shiv, even though they're having their own problems, who ultimately are the ones, um, you know, that are being antagonized by Roman. It's the first time we've ever sort of seen this, this power arrangement, which I thought was very interesting. And Roman, um, he says, you know, you just can't, you cunts can't stand to see me win. Um, I, I thought it was, um, an interesting setup, but, you know, there's also more, uh, you know of the the sex stuff that comes up where roman brings up the fact that tom's not going to jail and shiv didn't seem particularly happy about it he brings up you know the idea of oh well uh, i thought you were gonna you, you were thinking about all the you know the dick you were gonna ride while tom was in jail um shiv is like why are you so obsessed with who i'm having sex with is it because you're the coo who can't fuck uh all this stuff you know well it's very like talking about it it's not only sexualized but like highly gendered right like the way Mm -hmm. that he i think i forget what the line is but he says something like you thought it was woman time right like right like thinking and all the men got into the room and patted your head yeah right the idea that shiv has been again kind of just like waiting for stuff to happen to her right like thinking that sort of like the tides of history were on her side the tides of progressive change were going to come in in the form of the fbi um, which historically I think maybe has not worked out great um, to uh, to change things for her so that she could take over the company um, while Roman has like been putting in the work kind of in the background, right? And uh, again, it's... yeah, Ship doesn't want to do the work really. She has she's never had any interest in doing the work. She wants to ride on being the only daughter and the token and the favorite, and that she's smarter than everyone. But she never does anything to prove it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard for me to talk about this to not kind of take Robin's side with a lot of this as nasty as he gets in the scene. And like there's a, yeah. um, uh, a nice bit of blocking there where Colkin sort of climbs up on the back of that chair to give himself more Oh, I more loved height. that. Yeah. And um, the, the house music that's playing, I forget, it's uh, this, Alice in Wonderland. And, it's called um, Anything. That's that track. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very good. It's an Australian DJ and it... it really um complemented the scene nicely and sort of the yeah this was another um you know climax i think of of the episode and i uh, love a little edm to go along with uh you know, your, <laughs> your, your family bantering well we get this instance of sort of like the sort of specter of kind of like physical violence rears its head right when mm-hmm. roman's like daring ken to hit him right which is a fantastically kind of loaded moment in all kinds of ways because what this seems to provoke in ken is not like anger or defiance but like this deep sadness that things Mm -hmm. have sort of come to this place um you know because he gets the 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 jeremy strong sad face (laughs) the trademark uh downcast (laughs) chipmunk eyes yeah yeah um but um yeah maddie i'm interested in your thoughts on this kind of dynamic which again as we've been alluding to is a relatively new one but it has these kind of parallels back to you know austerlitz and then also to the scene in Argestes where uh, logan actually does strike roman and the idea of physical violence that has come up before in this family i think there's always a lot of stuff about displacement like after in this episode after roman hits him he then antagonizes connor 
Like mm. no one can ever directly attack one another. It always has to be across a proxy yes. or across another person. Um, so no one can really confront what's actually happened. Everyone's always moving around something that's unsaid, something that's unspoken. Um, and often acting like things will change if we don't act. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was thinking about... Um you know, all the Christ parallels, you know, throughout this, this season and in this episode. Turn the other too. cheek. Yeah. 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 And I mean, uh, and, and the idea that in our it was, uh, Ken who came to Roman's defense and the way that that scene was staged and acted it, you know, it really read to me. And I think to a lot of people, like it was a dynamic that had played out before of Ken sort of being the protector for his younger sibling. And, you know, Ken thinking of himself as this Christ figure, um, he has not been able to save anybody, least of all his siblings, who have only, I think, gotten you know more sucked into kind of Logan's orbit. Um, if he, there was some sort of like sublimated, you know, thought that uh, or fantasy that he would be able to extricate them and give them the escape hatch, as he kind of tried to in the second episode of the season, uh, it hasn't happened. Yeah, I mean, it also brought up for me. Um another kind of tender brother brother moment in Austerlitz when Roman goes to kind of rescue Ken from his mm. um you know meth hole and um you know a, a lot of people really uh ended up you know putting Roman in some some giving Roman some props there and, and his loyalty I think kind of shown through and and um it was refreshing and in this season it's been harder um, for Roman to kind of have that tenderness for Ken because Ken is sort of, um, you know, riding this high horse and this cultural wave and he's, you know, not letting himself be vulnerable and he's uh, very much like, you know, positioning himself as, yeah, this this Christ-like figure. And it's probably gotten really annoying for the siblings. And in season one uh, in Austerlitz, you know, if you remember... Ken is just coming down off of the vote of no confidence. He's really in a dark place. Um, and I think Roman sees that. And I think, again, this speaks to the idea that um, Kendall is, you know, is desperate to be known. He's desperate for somebody to see him for who he is and um, to have some sort of absolution. But he's been dressing it all up with this um, this woke language and this superiority complex. And yeah, again, I, I don't uh you know, want to justify all of Roman's behavior, but it's absolutely understandable. Um, and then, you know, there's this push where, um, you know, Kendall is actually walking away and then, you know, he comes back and, um, you know, Roman finally, when, when Kendall's walking out, kind of gives him a tap on the back, but, you know, a little bit more forceful and Kendall ends up kind of just uh, falling to the ground and it's sort of unremarkable and anticlimactic in itself. I, I don't think Roman meant for him to fall. He doesn't apologize. It sort of reminded me of, of kids, you know, not knowing their own strength um, and, and pushing each other and somebody getting more hurt than they meant to. Um, so it, the whole thing was just kind of sad and a reminder that, you know, there's threats of violence that linger constantly in this family. But so far, from what we've seen, um, you know, only Logan has ever really been able to land anything impactful in terms of, of violence, um, you know, physical or, or psychological. And Roman has that line about this is funny, we'll laugh at it later. Right. Like and his whole orientation within the siblings, um, I always joke that every time I visit my parents, I always regress to who I was as a teenager. 
Oh, so this too. is a group of people <laughs> who have never actually become adults because they're always around their family. Right. Um, but very much so like the whole, like as you said, like the childish, I shoved too hard and you actually got hurt. That's not what I yeah. meant. Um, but just because I didn't mean it doesn't mean it was an act of harm, like his inability to actually apologize. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It strikes me that that fall is actually foreshadowed earlier in the episode when they're asking Connor how he hurt his arm. And, you know, these... It, and I think Willis Ranch says, like, stuff. he fell. Irish jig. And he's like, don't say I fell. That sounds like I'm a million years old or whatever, right? <laughs> you know, and the fact that Ken has a fall at his 40th birthday party is very much just like, yeah, your youth is over. You're an old man who falls down now. Um, kind of Pushed it. by your little brother. There yeah. is sort of like Because usurped you in the, the family ranking, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That dynamic is so loaded. I, 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 well, to get into more of what we really want to talk about, I think, with that... Um, dynamic between the siblings we have to talk a little bit more about Shiv um, who I think I part of the stuff that I struggled with in this episode on first watch because this, this like I think many of the episodes of the season just really unfolded for me more and I unpacked a lot more on rewatches of it but the initial experience I felt that some of the stuff in this episode was a little bit redundant and in particular I was just thinking about the way that uh, this episode really emphasizes Shiv kind of having this realization that Roman has usurped her, uh, I guess, imagined position as sort of like the chosen sibling or the favorite sibling. Um, after I thought that, you know, the events of episode six, where Roman really bests her in that negotiation, um, you know, his favorite candidate basically wins the election, right? Um, that that I thought that that was quite well spelled out in that episode um, without having to be explicitly stated in the dialogue. Here, they kind of go over that again. But there is some, some new stuff here, too, as well, right? All the stuff about the family trust, and especially this plot point about Ken's kids being surveilled and the idea that Roman knew about that, but that Shiv doesn't. Um, and this, you know, ha has resonances all the way back to the beginning of the series where Shiv has always been talking about like, oh, nobody tells me anything in this family, mm -hmm. you know, and especially in Mass and Time of War in episode two from the season, you know, strongly denying that she ever knew anything about any of the misconduct or abuse that happened with her dad's friends or at the company. And, you know, this idea that Shiv is still sort of being protected, right? She's still kind, she's still being kind of kept out of the loop. Um, even as much as she tries to bring herself in, she's always kind of in that role of the daughter where Logan feels this need to kind of protect her and box her out of these things. I think Shiv and actually Kendall are dealing with a similar crisis where both of them have an image of themselves in the world and they're constantly being confronted with the fact that isn't how things are. And instead of like yes. adapting or growing like Roman does, um, they just refuse to. And I think in a lot of ways, Connor is actually the sibling who does this the most with this idea of yes. becoming president. Um, but 1%. I mean, it can sway <laughs> things. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. right. I, mean, the, I mean, he has like the most grandiose fantasy, maybe. Uh, but I guess it's not as grandiose as being president of the World Federation. Or whatever it is, right? Like techni <laughs> technically, that's a that's uh, Connor's fantasy. Well, at least, is at a, least it's his own thing. Connor's you know? is a bit more concrete, right? But yes, I think you're very right, Madeline. That like Ken's and Shiv's crises are very sort of like ego driven. Um, they are very similar in that sense, and it's interesting when the show the show often asks us to, to compare them indirectly, but they don't. They haven't shared a lot of scenes this season, um, but they've been some of my favorites when Ken and when Ken and Shiv are together because there is that sense that like the two of them. Are very alike and could maybe you know help each other with a lot of what they go through but they're really not able to break through their own sort of complexes about it 
too similar. Um, where Connor's like the vulgar version of all of them. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of really good Connor stuff in this episode. I think we're going to get to it um, in, in, in a little bit. Um, I did want to pose the question of like, you know, in that opening scene, and I think later in this episode too, you know, it's really suggested that Shiv is like almost disappointed that Tom is not going to jail. Um, and I, I did want to talk about that a little bit because, you know, in, in earlier seasons, it really has seemed like, you know, Shiv, you know, despite her paranoia and insecurity about monogamy and about being married, she really does love and need Tom and rely on him for support in a lot of ways. And that seems to have shifted somewhat this season. So like, what do we think has, has kind of happened there? Has that relationship uh, changed? Like what's the dynamic that's missing there? Like what changed for them maybe after that confrontation on the beach at the end of season two? Um, because I'm still kind of working through that myself and trying to kind of reconcile the distance between them that what we're seeing with the, um, I think very real, sort of like needs that we've seen them express in previous seasons. I think um, if Tom had gone to jail, Shiv would be more valuable to her father because it would be a kind of sacrifice she would make without actually having to make a sacrifice. So I think she had that kind of triangulation displacement going on and then that falls apart and has to take care of this extremely high. The way she rolls her eyes at the end of the episode is just so funny. <laughs> yeah, I know. She looked like, you know, annoyed by it i mean she's just so annoyed by him i think you know the end of season two shiv was faced with the very real prospect that tom was unhappy in the relationship and the thought of losing him was very very intolerable for her um but i think now um you know she's you know gotten more and more adrift in this season um she's thinking about it less tom is also more and more adrift she kind of just took for granted that you know he's going to go to jail and He's probably not going to leave her because he's been trying to impregnate her. He very much wants to stay in the fold. Um, I, and so I think she kind of was, was resting on that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that they are, you know, like we mentioned earlier, usually Tom is the one that's like engaged in the conversations with her and she's sort of not paying attention. It seems like Tom is sort of um, uh, starting to to occupy a similar role in the relationship um, as he realizes that, you know, um, he is fundamentally unhappy that that speech from season two still rings true. He just happened to be a little bit distracted this season with uh, the prospect of going to jail. But now that that's, um, you know, looking less likely, um, you know, <laughs> he's sort of facing himself again. It reminds me of Prague. Uh, wherever you go, the party finds you. Um, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so tom sort of being um on this early high doing a bunch of cocaine and then um yeah sort of having to face himself and realizing that um you know there's nothing to distract him anymore it's just going back to his life with um you know his his absent wife his absent cheating wife and i think um yeah i, I think shiv honestly just um you know kind of just took for granted that um you know, he'll be around because if he was going to go to jail, you know, he, he wanted to do something to stay in the family. And obviously that, yeah, you know, that huge through line has been the, the idea of, of getting her pregnant. 
Yeah, there's a sense in which Tom going to jail might have been, you know, one of the healthier things that could happen to that relationship. Give them some time apart <laughs> and uh, give him an, an incentive. You know, obviously he's, he's probably not going to get a divorce while he's in jail, right? So, I mean, it, it, yeah. it kind of takes the pressure off that, takes the pressure off, you know, the idea of having a baby, um, which activates all of Shiv's insecurities about monogamy and, you know, being tied down to something. Um yeah, I also thought it was interesting, too, just going back to, like, what you guys were talking about and, and uh, Shiv and Ken's egos and, you know, sort of just um, not being able to, to get out from underneath that. Uh, you know, we talked about Carrie last episode, and, and she makes a brief appearance early on in this episode and seems to be very much cemented that she is um, having some sort of relationship with Logan. When Logan asks everybody to leave the room, Carrie is still kind of there. Um, <laughs> and, and Logan asks Carrie, what was that thing that you said about uh, Matson? And she's like, you know, yeah, he's, you know, he thinks he's some genius. He made one good piece of tech. Fuck him. And the look on Shiv's face is like, you know, uh, she's again, so hurt by the fact that, uh, Logan is, is appealing to someone he's sleeping with, um, over her again, just like somehow still surprised by this, even though, uh, this seems to be a pattern in her life. Um, yeah, I mean, again, this is just, uh, you know, history repeating itself and yeah, it does seem like, like, uh, Kendall and Shiv's similar trajectories are starting to really become clear. Well, I did want to, yeah, I wanted to circle back on what we mentioned earlier about the very sort of like sexual charge of some of the stuff that Roman throws at Shiv in this confrontation, um, because it surfaced a lot of really interesting stuff. I mean, we, we've, Oedipus is something that surfaces a lot in this show and in this season in particular, but we haven't talked as much about the sort of like Electra complex uh, that we might say Shiv has. Roman and Shiv, who have been implied to be at various points, like, you know, almost like Irish twins of a kind. Uh, I think in the canon officially, it's very, like, ambiguous, like, which of them is the youngest sibling. Like, I think HBO officially yeah, it's, says it's that, never... Sh that Shiv is the youngest, but at one point they said Roman was younger, and the writers yeah, often the seem text, to write there, Roman as younger. Nothing... Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing that that has ever explicitly said it. I, but yeah, I, I do get the sense that they're just very, very close. They had in age. Um, a joke about being twins. I think in the first season, I remember looking this yeah, up and yeah. I came across a Reddit post where someone asked, "Are they twins?" And the first reply was, "This isn't an anime, <laughs> so it doesn't matter." <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have joked about spending too much time on the Succession subreddit, but that is certainly one of the questions I think that comes up the most among fans. It's like, wait, which one of them is younger? Because yeah, the official answer I think is that it's is that it's Shiv, but the the writing really often I think suggests that it's Roman. Mm -hmm. like, he has very just like yeah, sort of like Roman. youngest youngest, youngest sibling child energy. energy. Absolutely. Everything about him screams youngest. Yeah. But yeah. Re regardless, they're obviously very close in age. Yeah, but I mean, Gabby, you mentioned something, you know, about bringing something in in this episode uh, about the possibility that Roman was abused and possibly abused sexually as a child. And you mentioned that, and I think we've talked about that before. I can't remember if that came up in our Austerlitz episode. Uh, it's certainly an idea that... I think it did, it, yeah. It's certainly something that Roman joked about in that episode and that the show has kind of hinted at before. Um, and I think in the past, I've you know my attitude towards that has been like, well, maybe, but the show doesn't really seem too interested in telling us exactly what happened in their childhood. But as I was thinking about it regarding this season, 
I came more and more to think of that as something that the show has been really deliberately seeding in there. You know, in this in this confrontation with Shiv, when he he throws out this, you know, we talked in last week's podcast about the sort of like quasi kind of incestuous charge to the way that Logan kind of throws over Shiv for uh, his surrogate daughter, Carrie, that he's in a relationship with. And Roman throws that dynamic right back at Shiv here uh, explicitly by saying, he, you know, dad loves fucking me and he doesn't want to fuck you anymore. Uh, and, you know, in Shiv's line that she has there, which I think is really intentional, is like, why do you talk like this? Like, nobody else talks like this. And I think the show is yeah. asking us to ask that question. It's like, why does Roman think about sex this way? Shiv does talk that way a little bit, too. Like, if you recall earlier in this episode, she's asking... Uh, Roman where Tabitha is and she asks like how's the intimacy and the sex and the relationship I mean clearly like Logan and Caroline um, you know did not model very good boundaries in terms of of how to talk to their children about sex and and just in general their psychosexual development seems very stunted and I've always kind of had this hunch that Roman has um, maybe been the victim of sexual abuse so when he started joking about it um, I you know kind of confirmed that for me in my head canon that that happens to be true because Roman copes with you know pain with with joking and you know there there's also just you know the, the constant um incestual language and illusions and whatnot and I don't think necessarily it had to have been someone from the family um, or someone that he knew well uh, we know that Roman was sent off to military school when he was a kid which is you know a thing that happens in upper and upper middle class families when you know there's an unruly boy they come they they find these schools these, these you know disciplinary schools and and you get taken in the middle of the night i mean i know people this has happened to yeah um and they send you to these camps and it, they are pretty well known to be abusive and to inflict uh physical emotional sexual abuse on the students there um, I would not be shocked if something like that happened to Roman. It would make a lot of sense for his psychosexual issues and why he has, you know, even if, there was even like a little joke about it when he's in the bathroom with with Skarsgård and he's like, I can't pee in front of other men. Reasons for, we don't you know. know. Reasons yeah. that we reasons yeah. we don't know exactly. Like we don't, you know, it's it's a family thing. Everybody kind of knows that you know Roman has issues with sex, um, and and Chiff has kind of been needling him a little bit this season, bringing it up. Um, and I do think just kind of in Culkin's uh, body language, the way that he moves around a lot, that he uh, seems uncomfortable in his own body, um, you know, really further indicates to me that, that um, I, I think he was you know, probably subject to some kind of um, you know, sexual abuse as a child. Um, you know, again, I don't know committed by who, but there are lots of lots of options there and i'm sure these kids were also thrown into circles the wolf pack the right wolf pack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they were exposed to, to very seedy dangerous people and um did not have a lot of you know <laughs> boundaries in terms of of uh you know people taking care of them and shielding them from things and whatnot i wonder how much yeah. of um roman's confidence and action this season comes from his relationship with jerry like for once he finally has Mm -hmm. Like a peer, an equal sexual, a sexual relationship with someone that, you know, works for them. Also doubles as, as yeah, a mother. Yeah, but like it works bit. for them. Like it, it seems healthy, yeah. you know, consensual. Yeah, it's healthy yeah, and yeah. consensual. No, it so having this dynamic and also someone yes. who is tied to his father because she is C-suite. 
yeah it's safe yeah. yeah yeah fulfills that psychological need to be protected yeah i mean just the way that the kids you know back in mass in time of war like there's uh, you know, Roman storms out when, you know, Shiv, she's joking about his sexual issues again, right? Like, the way that those jokes are always, like, very much colored by the sort of, like, jocular, like, sort of young siblings kidding around with each other energy, it, it you know, it strongly suggests that that stuff surfaced pretty early, like, in their childhoods, and those dynamics were formed, like, pretty early. Um, so I just... Oh, yeah, for I, sure. I, and, and we were also talking about how this episode parallels with the other party episode, Prague, which is where we do get those details about Roman going to boarding school. And also the suggestion that Roman perhaps misremembers his childhood in some ways with the sort of like shifting yeah. stories about the, you know, the supposed the dog, like dog cage. cage that he was kept in. Yeah. Whether he liked it right. or didn't like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and false memories or the distortion of memories is also very, very common and you know, victims of child sexual abuse. So, um, you know, again, it, it all kind of tracks. We might, never learn anything about it um and that would be fine but yeah i mean i think it's it's been so embedded throughout the show that at this point um you know it's it's they're they're trying to tell us something about that yeah the uh, the online theories as we go into the last two episodes is that all the suicidal ideation stuff is going to culminate in ken making an actual suicide attempt which i mean i don't know that i would entirely yeah, rule that out but again like to draw the comparison to Mad Men they also played around with that imagery quite a bit um and it you know Don never actually made an effort himself you know there there was a suicide that took place on the show but it wasn't the character you expected so I, I don't know about that but I, but I do think that the <laughs> poor Jared Harris always having untimely deaths on <laughs> any show that he's he did well king, king of the... dying at the wrong time the terror <laughs> he survived that one yeah the terror yeah yeah oh yeah. it's great yeah, the terror. Yeah. The terror is pretty good. The terror, but uh, but I would not be surprised if this stuff just just looking at how intentionally it's seeded throughout this episode, if the show was building up to actually doing something with a, a revelation like that. Um, right, and we know that they're going to be with their mom for the last two episodes, and you know. Yeah, again, talking of the Electra and Oedipus complexes is not a coincidence. I think that yeah, we're returning to end the season with Lady Caroline again. We have gone rather long here and covered a lot of heavy territories, so. Um, let's um, move through some of the maybe the lighter stuff that happens in this episode. Talk about some of the funnier scenes. Talk about Connor and Willa, um, who uh, you know Connor's got the, uh, the the cast on him in this episode, um, which apparently was an actual like rotator cuff surgery that Alan Ruck had to have uh, that he like tore when he was shoveling snow, um, and they just <laughs> and they just wrote it into the episode. Um, you know, he says they say in the episode that he like was doing a jig after getting the polling results with max and pierce um but uh it's it's, it's a good bit and I, and I and i do like how you know connor maybe looking a bit older and feebler in this episode kind of plays again with all the ideas about like childhood and youth and birth and stuff yeah and also him being uh the surrogate father they also bring up again um the idea the camping trip right that he took the boys camping um yeah this is also something that has been seated throughout the season and all the stuff that connor knows because you know he was kind of right there and he's older and um yeah you're right that they uh (laughs) the the the, uh not wanting to take his coat off is you know sort of old man-esque and it was very sweet how willa had his yeah she calls him this is my partner which is like a total 180 (laughs) from earlier yeah Yeah. um i love the line where like people looking at cotter in that coat makes them feel cold so we have to take <laughs> yeah 
Because it's not cold in but here. But they see right? someone in the coat. It's making it freaking yeah. cold. Yeah, Connor and Willow were sweet. She defended yeah. him twice in the tabloid room and then to to Comfrey. And yeah, maybe they're the, the new functional relationship of the show. I, I, I liked the return of bitchy Willow. I think that's when uh, Justine is at her best. Very, very funny. Uh, the immersive theater. Yeah, <laughs> immersive he could have consulted, consulted me, but whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like the uh, I like the bit where uh, they're looking at the stage and Connor's going, "Wow, that was some substantial rigging." You know, how much do you think that cost? You know, I'm thinking about <laughs> Connor's like brief side career all the way back in Sad Sack Wasp Trap doing the event planning, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it is funny yeah. that uh, that Willa calls him her partner because, <laughs> you know, in the previous episode, Cotter was talking about how they stay up late and have these invigorating intellectual discussions. And you can sort of imagine that they think of themselves as like a very modern kind of couple, right? And that's how Willa sort of thinks about their obviously financially motivated arrangement. Um, but uh, they, they do seem to have arrived at a, a status quo that, uh, that works for them and is, is, yes, certainly more functional and healthy than a lot of the relationships on the show. And she is supportive of his presidential run. Like sincerely, yes, very supportive, it's, and it's, yeah, it's absolutely genuine. Yes, how how many how many uh, how many wives girlfriends can say the same would would support their partner's presidential aspirations? <laughs> the Greg subplot in this episode, uh, <laughs> I, I I have like positive and negative things to say about this. Um, Greg is at this party trying to score a date with um, Ken's PR assistant Comfrey. And uh, the positive thing I have to say about this is that I deeply relate to uh, Greg flirting by putting on a Hawaiian shirt and a blazer and affecting a stronger Southern accent than he actually has. I mean, it, wor- um, it works a- every time. It's just <laughs> foolproof. Like, you can't. Yeah, I'm sure being six seven probably like doesn't doesn't hurt there in that department either but it, it i don't know that it, it makes the difference with with comfrey eventually uh, yeah i would just say that i don't know <laughs> this is probably maybe this is mean but it's it's probably not a good idea to generally to take the two most limited actors i would say in your ensemble and strand them in kind of an inessential subplot you know there's a that bit you know where greg scores the date which seems to be as he says, motivated by peak, uh, because Comfrey has just had, you know, an absolute hellish experience managing this party and Ken's like constantly changing whims. Um, so, you know, she has this little bit about how she's got all these He-Man lunchboxes in her apartment, whatever. And uh, yeah, pretty, pretty tough to see Dasha having to uh, affect more than one emotion in a scene. It was... Uh... Yeah, it was hard because the, the writing there was good about... Um... <laughs> you know she has to try and salvage the party and call springsteen and get kendall a jetpack to to leave through the retractable roof that takes two days to open um yeah i don't know i thought that maybe there was an opportunity there for dasha to kind of um you know introduce a a, a maybe different tone to her acting uh when when greg kind of asks her out but it did feel somewhat one note yeah, I've liked this character when it felt like the show was playing on the sort of like natural, sociopathically bored, bitchy affect uh, that she has, especially when, uh, you know, the show is mainly just asking her to kind of read tweets and, you know, like <laughs> uh, listen to Ken uh, give her like Humor the worst Ken, assignment yeah. in the world. I can't say that I'm terribly uh, excited to see more of the the Greg's love interest subplot. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew it was going to happen. I knew Greg Greg having a love interest was something that they, they were going to develop this season. But yeah, I mean, uh, less said the better, perhaps. 
<laughs> Less said the better. <laughs> Um, yeah, and we did get uh, we did get Lucas Matson in this episode to Alexander Skarsgård, who was uh, again one of the castings that was like the most head turning. Um, I think when this was announced uh, earlier this yeah, year, yeah, it was announced with Adrian Brody. With Adrian Brody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Movie stars taking over the TV show. Skarsgård is somebody that I'm kind of ambivalent about um, because I generally find him to be more effective when he plays characters who are kind of remote or distant as a as opposed to like really supposed to be charismatic um so in that sense i found this material to be kind of a good fit for him i don't think that we've really seen a lot of like what this character is up to like i said it seems like kind of a cliche kind of like a stock antisocial, maybe neuroatypical tech guy that we're dealing with here um some of the stuff that's been kind of hinted about what may unfold with the gojo deal makes me think that we are dealing probably more directly with something like an Elon Musk analog. I, I, I found Skarsgård to be basically uh, effective insofar as like the material uh, asked him to basically present a challenge to Roman and, you know, for them to kind of meet it and find that rapport was satisfying. I did like the sort of, there's an intertextual quality of having like the actors play distant billionaires who they need. And then yeah. the podcaster um play like the lowly employee right. <laughs> that gets abused the whole time yeah yeah i mean it's always interesting to see um a new kind of like example of, of a young billionaire in, in the succession world we really only got it like with stewie for for a while and then um uh, this season we've had josh aronson and now uh lucas matson i think um yeah, I think that the Aronson character was teased out a little more. Um, it seems like they, you know, both of these characters dislike Logan, but Aronson seems to kind of have a genuine grievance about how Logan perceives him, um, whereas Matson just kind of comes across a little bit more um, <laughs> like a psychopath, um, just in the way that he was very <laughs> um, explicit about asking when Logan was going to die and that he really just doesn't even want to deal with Logan at all. But um, yeah, always interesting to, to see uh, the world building here and, and think about analogs and, and hopefully um, we'll get a little bit more from Skarsgård in the next two episodes because, yeah, I do enjoy him as an actor and, um, yeah, he, he plays uh, bad people very, very well. <laughs> well something I, we totally skipped over at the start of this episode was the list of, like, A-listers that are supposed to be at the party that Comfrey runs down. Oh, I didn't know if we wanted to go over any of those we alluded you to. You briefly mentioned the, the Elon and Jeff. The, uh, there were a bunch of other ones that I didn't quite know. A few actresses that, that seemed to make sense, but yeah. Yeah, they said they dropped a Chloe in there. My my mind immediately went to Chloe Sevigny, which I thought was just a. Bit, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I thought that. Uh, I, mean, I just liked that idea of Chloe Sevigny going to Kenfest. It makes perfect sense. Um, it's just a funny idea. Makes perfect idea sense. Yeah, she also is like friendly with Dasha, so you know the whole thing. Just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, metatextually, <laughs> yeah, she's there. Yeah, I really liked uh, Kendall's references for the party, which were Talib, Harari, and Gladwell, which is like right. <laughs> the bro reading list par excellence. Wait, who, like anytime Kendall makes. Wait, who are those uh, guys supposed to be? Like Gladwell, I know. Who are the other ones? Malcolm Gladwell, Talib did the Black Swan. So like oh, Nas the oh, oh, Nassim Taleb. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, yeah, right. and then Harari did Sapiens. <laughs> okay. Yeah, when he's like so, he's going on that like really tiresome like sort of like futurist monologue about like you know this is what the future is yeah. going to look like before they're going into the tabloid room yeah like i keep expecting like an accelerationist reference from him 
Maybe the next two episodes. Ken, uh, <laughs> Ken, drop the Goodreads. <laughs> Ken, big Nick Land reader. <laughs> and the uh, one of the supporting characters who we don't see is uh, Kendall's assistant, Jess, um, who is just not seen at all. I guess she has the night off, which means that she automatically wins the power rankings for this week because she was not at the party. <laughs> I would love an episode just from her perspective. <laughs> oh, gosh, wouldn't we all? Yeah, a day in the life. Yeah, people have said that. There was like a whole piece, I think, that was published this week about uh, the interview with Juliana Confield about the like uh, the Jess stands and the Jess fandom. It's just, just, just a terrific background player who we're always kind of happy to see but you know we can be i think sort of happy for her that she was not <laughs> she did not have to be present for this debacle because she surely would have been hopefully deeply involved behind the scenes hopefully he let her turn her phone off too because you know she's always on call but yeah you know i don't know if i'd give kendall that much grace no uh no he-man lunchboxes in her apartment big win <laughs> oh, this is well this episode has been a roller coaster a lot of darkness some laughs um but uh we have run a bit long so i guess we should go ahead and start to wrap up and uh we should do our usual routine of going around any sort of like stray lines or thoughts that we had about the episode that we didn't talk about um any little bits that we forgot to mention or favorite lines of dialogue gabby anything come to mind for you not in terms of lines i just thought that the the style and the fashion in this episode was kind of interesting and different um we see Kendall in green, Shiv in green. We hardly have ever seen any of them wear green. Um, Shiv's Shiv's dress, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> she's starting to, they're, they're dressing her like a Republican. I mean, like, it's, it was just kind of overly formal. It was very, a beautiful color and it looked great on her. But, um, you know, the neckline was kind of weird. Sarah Snook is such a beautiful girl with such, like, a, a, a nice body. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of a waste. And, and I, But I liked that her hair was kind of messed up. Like, she clearly had not gone to hair and makeup. Um, it sort of um, was a disconnect from the overly formal dress and maybe a representation of Shiv kind of. Um, <laughs> this this ego uh, identity problem and, um, you know, not really... Uh, it, being able to uh, make herself whole. And uh, I, I like that Roman was also in all black. I don't think we've ever seen Roman in all black and very much uh, taking on the, you know, the executive role now. Executive level business. Maddie, any favorite uh, lines or uh, moments for you? Um, actually, I was thinking back to what you mentioned with uh, Oedipus um, or Oedipus. <laughs> I don't actually know. I've only read it. Um, but uh, how with the later plays, Antigone has to take care of Oedipus while well, he dies and then after he dies has to have this whole drama between choosing between family and state which is not not inappropriate for Shiv um I don't think she's Antigone at all but it's interesting seeing those lines um but I think my favorite moment in the episode was when Greg punches like the screen of Kendall in the dick and then it like glitches that was so funny <laughs> that was my favorite just those like images was, of yeah. Kendall like standing yeah just 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 around just like all those like stock images of him gliding he must have by. had yeah. like a whole photo yeah, there's also shoot some pictures of him yeah. as like a baby too at one point <laughs> um just so strange but yeah like they looked like stock images from you know like the the waystar website or whatever the the, the bright star orientation video <laughs> Yeah, everywhere, yeah, no matter, even his wildest fantasy, he just ends up sort of, like, replicating the tropes of the sort of corporate environment that he's been ensconced in. Um, I just, I just absolutely love the line when Tom's just high out of his mind at the party, 
and Greg approaches him. He's like, it's okay. Are you okay? You don't seem, you haven't been smiling at all. And he goes, you know, I'm enjoying very much thinking about myself and my own various skills and abilities. Um, (laughs) You don't have to be smiling to be happy. Oh God. Yeah. We, we started with it for a reason. Again, like this was really like, I'm sure that, you know, like whenever people submit, like their like, tapes for like awards or whatever like which episodes to submit for the emmys it's always like like the episode where you had to cry or something but this like the intoxicated acting that uh mcfadian does here is like you know the egod is not worthy i I say yeah um (laughs) um it's been terrific talking to you madeline um uh where can folks find you online anything you would like to plug where can folks find your work so I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Paratines, P-A-R-I-E-T-I-N-E-S, um, where I post a lot about buildings. Um, and yeah, I work for the Indie Memphis Film Festival, and we have really great year-round filmmaking, which is available digitally, so you should check that out. Beautiful. We will link to that in the show description. Um, yeah, we've got two episodes left this season. And finally, the critics are catching up along with the rest of us scrubs, and uh, we will all find out uh, where this uh, season is heading, what kind of disaster we are headed for together. Um, So we will be back next week to discuss uh, Season 3, Episode 8. I want to say thanks again to Madeline, thanks to Gabby, thanks to our producer, Dan Black. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you're enjoying the Roycast, please take a few seconds of your day to drop us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate the folks who have already done so. Uh, We will talk to you again uh, very soon. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.